1: Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, my guest is Mark Harris, the writer of a best selling book called Mike Nichols Alive. And Mike Nichols, certainly one of the more larger than life characters in 20th century and 21st century show business. A long time ago, he teamed up with Elaine May, and the two of them were a comedy act that was a huge national sensation. He later went on to become a director. He directed The Odd Couple on Broadway. Uh, He then segued into movies. He directed Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. He also directed and won an Oscar for his work on a little film called The Graduate. He has a huge body of work, and he's a fascinating character, and you'll learn about him and much more this week and next. This is a two-parter because there's so much to talk about. Mike Nichols, we will learn about him as I speak with author Mark Harris this week on Hollywood and Levine. Well, Mark, a friend of mine, I think said it best. He said, this is the book On Mike Nichols, that we've been waiting for. (laughs) There have been a lot of books about Mike Nichols. Yours is by far the most interesting, the most complete. You really get a profile of this fascinating individual. And it's also very extensive, like almost 700 pages. How long did it take you to write this book?
0: Um, the, the writing, I'm a pretty fast writer, I think from being a journalist, um, you know, that training kind of comes in handy. So it took about a year to write, but it took about three and a half or four years before that to research. That was really the, the bulk of the time.
1: You got a lot of interviews in the book. I mean, you got Robert Redford and Meryl Streep and Candace Bergen, but the one that amazed me because I know how reclusive she is. How did you get Elaine May to talk to you? You know,
0: I I really wish I could give myself credit for that, but I, I think the way I got Elaine May to talk to me was that Elaine May decided to talk to me. You know, she, she does not do anything that she doesn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the fact that... um uh the the book had the the consent of Mike's family uh meant something to her. Um that, that she knew she wasn't sort of speaking to someone that that you know Diane Sawyer or the kids didn't want her to speak to. Um and also I was I didn't know this until the interview happened, but I was struck by something uh that she said in the interview, um, which was she said after they had their big professional breakup in nineteen sixty two, they got back together as friends fairly quickly, but it was never the same. And, and she said one way it wasn't the same was we were very careful with each other in terms of what we asked each other to do. And we were very careful to try never to say no to each other. Um, And so I thought in a way, maybe this interview was her not saying no to Mike because um, she knew that he was okay with me.
1: Well we'll circle back to Nichols and May. So kind of let's let's start in the beginning. And he certainly did not have a, a fairy tale childhood. I mean, he and his brother were shipped off to America when they were very little. They were finally reunited with their parents father was a doctor in Germany and was rather well off. And then they came to the United States and found themselves poor. And I guess that was a major part of his psyche, wasn't it? That there was always that fear that it was going to be taken away, which probably uh, explains a lot of the decisions that he made in taking movies and projects that uh, you, you would shake your head
0: i think so i mean he had a really unique experience which is that uh he and his little brother and their parents had a a kind of okay middle class immigrant existence uh in new york for a while and then his father died quite suddenly of leukemia when mike was about um 13 and after that the family really got into pretty severe financial trouble. And I think it was that experience, the idea that everything could be taken away from you in a blink with no notice, your father, your comfort, your financial security, that really did um, live in him very deeply, I think, for the rest of his life.
1: And then later on in his career, when he was incredibly successful, he... Got addicted to a sleeping pill, which resulted in hallucinations and there was like a year long period where he was calling everybody afraid that he was going to go broke <laughs> and right
0: yeah. right it's so, it 's so interesting to me that something like that I mean Mike had a heart attack and and was anxious afterwards, and uh, his doctors prescribed him halcyon to recover uh, to 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 soothe the anxiety and that pill is uh, which he began taking more and more of is what caused this delusional thinking. But you know, delusions are so often tailored to the individual psyche of the person who has them. And so it makes perfect sense that Mike's uh, terrible fear, this thing that grabbed hold of him during that breakdown, was the idea that he would die. Broke and leave his children starving that was that was really what the focus was that 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 he wouldn't be able to provide for his children, so that was obviously you know replaying something uh, from his own early life pretty intensely
1: and that's quite a contrast to the public persona that he always gave off as being just so calm and so in control of things when underneath. Uh, it was just a a cauldron that was boiling. I
0: think so. I mean, I guess, you know, almost all public people in the arts invent a a kind of public persona to some degree or Mm -hmm. other. None of us are really the same when we're out in front of people we don't know as we are, you know, in the privacy of our living rooms. But Mike, more than most people, really had to literally invent himself. I mean, he had to put on a wig every day he had to put on eyebrows every day um, and and in the course of that he he said he said once you know it takes me three hours every day to become Mike Nichols and and you know imagine sort of having to be so self-conscious that you couldn't go out in the world without creating this kind of impeccable exterior I think that must have been a pretty profound thing to feel from from really childhood
1: and just for some background on that he was four years old and he got a vaccine for whooping cough that resulted in the loss of his hair and the inability to grow it again you know kids are so gracious anyway <laughs> <laughs> I Right. Mean, you know, imagine in- growing up Like that where you're completely bald and you're in elementary school and, you know, it must have caused for him, you know, a self-consciousness that really just bore into his psyche for the rest of his life.
0: Right, he's he's completely bald. His father while he was alive did not allow him to get a toupee because the kind of misguided psychological thinking behind that was you, you might as well get used to it. He was an immigrant. He came not speaking any English. Uh he was Jewish. I mean there you could if you were an insensitive kid in New York in the 1940s or or late 30s you could pick on Mike from a lot of different angles. There was a lot there.
1: Yeah, kids are so much more charitable now. <laughs> you mentioned that he was a, an immigrant, so English was a second language. And it's interesting when you look at a number of people in the industry, like Billy Wilder, like Larry Gelbart, uh, also English was their second language. And they all seem to develop a real love of the language. And I got a chance to see Mike Nichols speak once, And it's amazing because he opened his mouth and literature came out. (laughs) It's like I've never encountered anybody who was that articulate and everything, you think you're a fast writer. (laughs) It's like everything he said was like it was a a paragraph that had been worked on and refined. It's amazing.
0: It's funny because Mike really did not consider himself a writer. I mean, he was very open about that. He did not want to write his scripts. He he valued writers a great deal. One of his favorite writers and one that he had the longest friendship with is um Tom Stoppard who also um you know became this master of uh English even though it was not his first language. Mm-hmm. Um but uh but it's always amazing to me because his Mike's speaking as you said was so writerly so elegant uh, every sentence was uh such a little jewel um but he wasn't comfortable with uh actual writing it, it um including handwriting um you know he, he was embarrassed by his handwriting because he missed he, they skipped him in third grade when he came to uh, the united states and so he never learned to write script and he was always felt very self-conscious about that. But once email started to happen, Mike became a champion emailer. He loved writing notes because he didn't have to handwrite them anymore.
1: Well, he's a very complex individual, Uh, the public persona, as we talk about. And he could be so charming. He could be very gracious. But there was also another side of him where he could be tyrannical he could be extremely cruel to people and one thing i appreciate in your book is that it's not just a puff piece you know you really give the full profile and it's like there's a monster inside this guy that would surface from time to time
0: yeah there there was and i think that mike knew that um and and it was something that he quite consciously tried to work on throughout his career. I mean, the first time he was really told that he had a monster inside him was, was uh, I think, on the set of uh, The Graduate. I mean, it was something that surfaced very early on. Um, and uh, he was embarrassed by it. He he couldn't entirely control it, but but he was embarrassed when he would be high-handed with the crew or pick out one actor to be almost kind of sadistically unsatisfied with and um it 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 was something that he struggled with and for me in terms of working on the book there was never any question about whether i would leave that out or not tell that side of the story i mean it's absolutely a part of who he was and also he was very candid and blunt about it i mean the way he narrated parts of his own life to me um really up uh, through his um, marriage to diane sawyer uh, when when he told um the producer douglas wick on working girl if i don't find someone who will kick my butt when i'm rude to a cab driver i'm over as a human being i mean that was when mike was already in his mid to late 50s and it was still a great matter of concern for him that that he learned to keep himself in check and that somebody else keep him in check
1: yeah, you have a great story. I think it's in Day of the Dolphins where he was horrible to the crew and he felt remorse and he went to the cinematographer and said, I'd like to gather the whole crew and apologize to them. And uh, the cinematographer said, it's too late.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Mike, Mike told me a, a similar story to that about The Graduate. Um, uh with with that cinematographer. So maybe it happened twice or maybe he was conflating two things, but it was striking to me when he told it to me, which was probably almost 40 years uh, after it happened, you could hear in his voice and see in his face real pain, kind of the, the, the mortification and embarrassment of that moment had not really left him. It, 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 it put him back, uh, right in in the center of those feelings. It was something that really bothered him about himself.
1: How much uh, interaction did you have with Mike Nichols?
0: Um, I had a good deal in the last, I guess, um, dozen years of his life. I I met Mike around um, 2000 or 2001 when um, he started working with my husband, Tony Kushner, on the HBO adaptation of uh, Angels in America. And you know, The Making of Angels was a very, very, very long process, a long writing process, a year-long shoot, a year of post-production. So there was a lot of time to kind of get to know him and see him work and 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 talk to him. And then soon after that, I interviewed him for my first book, which was partly about the making of The Graduate. Um, so... So I, I, I didn't have any intention uh, or thought ever of writing his biography. Um, that it's not something that came up um, until after he died. The only way it came up was that I I always used to urge him to write his own, um, and he was really adamant that he was just not going to do that, and and insisted even he said once I I am very proud that I've made. Uh, any future biographer's life impossible, because I've burned everything. And that was something I often remembered in the years when I was doing the research. But he didn't make it quite as impossible as he thought he did.
1: Another thing that you do in the book that I appreciate is you talk about his first wives and his kids. In a lot of other books, either they're not even mentioned or it's just footnote like, Oh, and he was married to her for a couple of years and then they got divorced and she went away. And, uh, you know, the ex wives really figured in who he was and a lot of his decisions. Yeah.
0: I would honestly love to have included more than I included, um, Mike's three children, uh, uh, chose not to be interviewed for the book and that was not in any way sort of going back on their consent or going back on their word they had never promised it and they they are quite private people so i totally respect their decision not to do that but but they were very very important to mike and and uh he was to them and you know, he was married four times. So that doesn't happen without um, some really interesting things along the way. And, and, you know, I was so grateful that Mike's first wife, who was just married to him for two years from 1957 to 1959, but they were the two crucial years during which he went from not famous to famous. I was so grateful that she talked to me because I really did feel that I got a great, glimpse of the private mike from a time that i didn't know very much about and that i hadn't read much about and that he hadn't spoken very much about
1: so let's go back to that time we're in the mid to late 50s mike goes to chicago uh winds up getting involved with the compass players and second city and basically the birth of of improv and meets elaine may and their original meeting was not your typical romantic comedy meet cute was it
0: right he he was in uh a production of a college production of miss julie um that had inexplicably gotten a lot of positive attention including from like the chicago daily news or the chicago tribune it had been reviewed and so it Unlike most college productions, it didn't run for a weekend. It ran for a couple of months. And she came to see him in it. And he he uh described her once as this evil girl sitting in the front <laughs> row staring at me. Um and, and he, he said, I felt incredibly compelled to somehow let her know from the stage that I also knew this production was terrible. Um and uh but but that was their that was their non meat cute and then their meat cute came sometime later when he ran into her in um, uh, a train station in Chicago, uh, saw her sitting alone, and sat down with her and started basically doing a bit, like started an improv. He pretended he was a secret agent um, meeting uh, this woman for some clandestine rendezvous, and she didn't miss a beat and picked up uh, and continued with it, and that was when they really they clicked, and out of that grew their amazing partnership.
1: What do you think, because you're right, they, they then became Nichols and May, like an overnight sensation, which is rather improbable considering it's a, a man and a woman doing sketches and sort of underplaying comedy, and yet it was, you know, just so... Uh, accepted what do you think about Nichols and may was so special and and clicked with america and the zeitgeist and whatever you you know
0: they they were so they were so new i mean when you think of funny women from the 1950s uh, you know i think of people like um Lucille Ball and Imogene Coca and uh, Elaine May was not like that. I mean, she, there was nothing. I I mean, I think those women are unbelievably talented, but, but Elaine May was sort of sultry and, and not, um, not any, not clownish in any way. She once said that she got all of the femme fatale parts in everything the compass players ever did because she was the only woman in the troupe who could wear a trench coat. Um, (laughs) And so there was this weird – and the other thing was they didn't tell jokes. I mean, they they created these situations that usually started as very ordinary. I mean, two teenagers in the front seat of a car, and uh, he wants to – uh, go farther than she wants to go, or, uh, a son who's too busy to call his mother and his mother, uh, guilt trips him. And they they would spin these very recognizable ordinary situations into these great outlandish hysterical areas. But there was always one foot in reality. And, and Mike often said that was, what was really important to him was that, um, no matter how crazy the situation got there, there was always, it was always grounded enough so that someone in the audience could say, Oh, I know that guy. I am that guy. I thought I was the only person who ever did that. I thought my mother was the only person who ever did that. But, but someone has seen like the funny thing about my life. And now I know that I'm not alone in it. That felt like a really big departure from the kind of comedy that was being done back then.
1: Yeah. I contend that it changed comedy in in america it it really did why did they break up well uh
0: they in a period of a very few years they went from you know nightclub success to national television success to finally um uh, a two-person broadway show that they did to sold out audiences for about nine months and that ended in 1961 Uh, largely because Elaine May really was getting tired of doing the same thing night after night after night. They did do one completely improvised sketch every night, but the rest of it was stuff that they had really worked on over the years. and, And that was pretty much locked by that point. And, and she essentially said, you know, I never imagined in my career that that is what I would end up doing, that, that I would end up just performing the same thing eight times a week. Mike, often said that he would have been content to keep doing that, but she was restless. So they split up. Uh, She went off to try to write a play. He went off to think about what he wanted to do next, maybe act a little bit. And then the idea emerged that he would star in uh, a play that uh, she had written about him and that it would try out in Philadelphia and then go to Broadway. And that's where everything went wrong uh you know turning their relationship into something unequal where he was standing on stage and she was judging him and he was judging her writing uh destabilized their relationship so much that it really got pretty rough and ugly you know where she wanted him fired from the show and and uh he wanted her banned from the rehearsal room and insisted that she make cuts in the play that she didn't want to make. And, and, you know, it was a big disaster. Uh, The, the play um, closed out of town. It never came to Broadway. And then there was a period of about 18 months or two years when they really were not connected, were not friendly. I mean, the rift healed fairly quickly after that, but that long moment when it was absolutely clear that their partnership was over was the moment where almost by chance he became a director
1: and by the way you can see samples of Nichols and May on YouTube all of those uh, sketches that Mark mentioned are available also there's a PBS documentary on the two of them which I have found on YouTube so if you're not familiar with Nichols and May I invite you to check that out you're going to be very happy So there you go, part one of my two-part interview with Mark Harris. Again, the name of the book is Mike Nichols' Life. Next week, we talk a lot more about his directing career. Boy, there's just so much to talk about with this guy. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Also, thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, along with Bruce and Jason Miller. If you would like to email me, com is my address. Again, that is HollywoodLevine at outlook.com. Do you follow me on Twitter yet? At Ken Levine, please do. Also, you can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. And, of course, I could use a five-star review. Coming up next week, part two with Mark Harris discussing his book, Mike Nichols, A Life, right here on Hollywood and Levine. Talk to you then. Hollywood and Levine.